0: All right, you guys can turn to Genesis uh, 34 into 33 is where we'll start today. We are talking about parenting as we look at the life of Jacob as his, at his experiences as a parent. If you are a parent, I'm sure you have had that moment um, that all of us parents have felt, that moment where you really wish you could get something back. You you just did something, a a bad parenting mistake, and you feel really awful about it, really guilty about it. You did it, and the moment you did it, you feel really guilty, really ashamed of what you just did as a parent. My uh, most recent one, at least the most recent one I'm aware of this morning, uh, was a few weeks ago. As I was driving my kids to preschool, I needed to drop them off on time because then I needed to make it here to a counseling appointment with a college student, and I really like to be on time to things. My kids, unfortunately, do not share my love of punctuality. I love to be on time. My kids can't even tell the time. They're just four years old at this point. They can't tell the time. What they can do is stall. I have become convinced that the spiritual gift of every preschooler is the ability to stall. doesn't matter how much time you give them. To get from point A to point B, they'll need more. So you give them one hour to get ready, they'll need two. You give them two, they'll need four. You give them four, they'll need till sometime next Tuesday to be ready to leave the house. And so it was one of those kind of mornings where everything is going wrong. there, stalling at every turn. And we finally, we go out to the garage, we get in the car, and I look at the clock, and we are already late. And I am feeling very frustrated at this moment, and I must admit, I did not handle my frustration very well. I pulled the car out of the garage, and I yelled at my kids. Just lost it. I yelled at them. I was so upset. I was so frustrated. And as soon as the emotion was spent and I was done yelling, I felt really guilty. I felt incredibly ashamed. And I was reminded once again that there is nothing like parenting to bring out the worst in me. I thought I was a godly man until I had kids. I thought I was a patient man until I had kids kids. I thought I was a selfless man until I had kids. There is nothing like parenting to bring out the worst in us, because parenting is the hardest job we will ever have. Incredibly hard job. It is intense. It is demanding. It is a 24-7, 365 job, which you can't quit. It's going to last your whole life, and it's full of fatigue and frustration and difficulty and demands, and for many parents, it's full of heartbreak. It's incredibly hard, and because it's so hard, there's nothing like parenting to bring out the worst in us, but here's the flip side. Because parenting is so hard, not only can it bring out the worst in us, it also can bring out the best in us. Parenting, this incredibly hard thing, is an opportunity for God to bring out the best in you. So parenting, because it's so hard, it it can bring out the worst in you or it can bring out the best in you. It depends on whether you're walking with the Lord in that moment. For really all of us in the room who are parents, it's going to bring out both. It's going to bring out the worst in us when we're not walking with the Lord. It's going to bring out the best in us when we are. And we'll see both in the life of Jacob today. So we're going to look at Jacob from chapter 33 of Genesis to chapter 35. We're going to see the worst in Jacob as a parent in 33 and 34. And then we're going to see God bring out the best in Jacob in chapter 35. So obviously, I'm going to be speaking primarily to you who are parents this morning. It's going to be directly relevant to us. It's going to be convicting. It's going to be instructive. We need to walk out of here having learned from Jacob's failures and successes. Okay, that's our goal this morning. But what if you're not a parent yet? What if you're not even married yet? You're probably feeling tempted to check out. Why should I bother listening to, to this message? Let me encourage you to, to listen and engage for two reasons. A couple reasons why you should pay attention, even if you're not a parent yet. Reason number one, because it is never too early to begin to learn how to be a good parent. When your kids actually come, you are not going to have time to learn how to be a good parent. You're just going to be trying to survive. You're going to be overwhelmed and sleep deprived. You will not have time to figure any of this out. Okay, so begin learning now. You need to at least get the basics in order before the kids come. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. That's the first reason to pay attention is because it's never too early to begin to learn. Second reason why you should pay attention to this text in Genesis, even if you don't have kids, even if you'll never have kids, is because... Even if you're not going to be a parent, you are still the product of parenting. Your parents raised you, and and when they raised you, they did some things good and some things bad, and those choices they made have affected you in enduring ways. That's true for all of us. We have a lot of baggage in our lives, both for good and bad, that we receive from our parents. If we want to be able to walk with the Lord in truth and in light, we have to own up to that. We have to acknowledge that. We have to see the successes in in what our parents did. We have to see the good stuff that they did and give thanks to God for the good decisions they made and commit ourselves to follow their good examples. But we also need to acknowledge what they did wrong. And all parents do stuff wrong, myself included. You need to acknowledge the mistakes that your parents made in your life so that you can see them and avoid them. And here's why. Because all sin is inherently generational. If you are not paying attention to your life, you will fall into the same bad habits you saw modeled for you in your home growing up. And then you'll end up passing those bad habits on to your kids. That's actually exactly what Jacob did. He inherited his father's sins and passed them down to his sons because he wasn't paying attention. He wasn't looking to see what are the mistakes my dad made that I can avoid. What we need to do is we need to recognize the mistakes our parents made. We need to realize that their mistakes, if we're not careful, will become our mistakes. We need to see those things, go to the Lord and pray that he would help us to avoid the mistakes that our parents made. That he would work in that area of our lives so that we can be the break in that generational sin and not pass it down to our kids. Okay, so whether you're a parent or not, this message is for you. We need to look at, at Jacob's life, at the good things he did and the bad things he did. We need to learn lessons in parenting from Jacob. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the bad stuff. We're going to look at Jacob's mistakes as we learn basically some lessons in bad parenting from Jacob. Now Jacob made a lot of mistakes. He had a lot of sins that affected his family. We've already seen some of them. We actually already seen a lot of sin in Jacob's life. He was a liar. He's a liar through a lot of his early life. He will end up passing that sin on to his kids. They will lie to him in turn. So we've seen that sin quite often. He was a liar. Uh, Second, we saw that he practiced the sin of favoritism. He preferred Rachel over Leah, Rachel's kids over Leah's kids, and he didn't try to hide it. That broke Leah's heart, and it turned Leah's sons against Rachel's sons. It actually created hatred and jealousy throughout the family. We've seen that before. We'll see it again next week as we begin to look at Joseph. So um, Jacob has committed a lot of sins that have negatively affected his family. We're going to see two new ones this morning, two failures in Jacob's parenting. If you want to be a bad parent... You just should do exactly what Jacob does in chapters 33 and 34, two mistakes he makes as a parent. Okay, number one, if you want to be a bad parent, step number one, like Jacob, compromise with sin. Compromise. It's the first mistake we're going to look at this morning. Look at the end of chapter 33, starting in verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram, and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Okay, now, this sounds pretty good. Jacob settles down, he buys some land, he builds an altar and worship to God. It sounds like the dude is, is making a good decision... Unless you go back and look at the end of chapter 28. So leave your finger here and turn back to chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take... And will give me food to eat and garments to wear. And I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give attend to you. Jacob makes a vow, a promise to God. God, if you take care of me, which God had done, then then this place right here, this will be your house. What he's saying is, I will come here and build an altar to you and worship you here in this spot. What is this spot? Well, this is the first place where God showed up to Jacob. It's a place called Bethel. But but Bethel isn't really a place that you would want to visit. If you recall, it looks like this. It's just a wilderness. There was no streams here. There's no town. There's no city. There's no trees. There's nothing. It was actually a no-name place. It's not even got the name Bethel yet at this point in the story. So it's a wilderness. It's not a good place to live. It's not a good place to visit. And so Jacob, knowing how inhospitable, how unpleasant Bethel is, he decides to make a little compromise. Here's what his journey looked like. He came from the city of Haran, far to the north on the map, and he traveled all the way down to Israel, and he should have gone to Bethel. That's where he promised God, that's where I will go and worship you. But he gets close, and then he sees a nice-looking town the town of Shechem, and he decides, well, well, that would make a much more pleasant place to live. Right here, just a little turn to the north. Shechem had a lot to offer, a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity, a lot of trade and commerce. It was located on the intersection of trade routes. So you always had fresh produce. You always had abundant supplies. So Jacob looks and he thinks, well, it's it's much more comfortable, it's much more pleasant to live in Shechem, so he makes a compromise. And we don't know what was going through his mind. Did he figure, well, maybe in the future I'll go all the way, the rest of the way, to Bethel and keep my promise, maybe next year. Or maybe he just figured, hey, I'm close enough, and I got 95% of the way there. Really, what can God expect? For whatever reason, Jacob makes a compromise and chooses to settle in Shechem instead of Bethel, like he had promised. And that compromise with sin, seemingly small compromise, it will end up costing Jacob's family, cost them an incredible amount of pain and suffering. So the first mistake that Jacob makes, he decides to compromise with sin. Seems small, just a little compromise here, just to make life a little more comfortable, a little more pleasant ends up causing the family incredible pain, incredible suffering that begins in the next chapter, chapter 34. Jacob is going to experience the results of his first mistake, compromising with sin, and he's going to make his second mistake, his second failure as a father, second step if you want to be a bad parent, you check out. You check out from your family, you check out from your kids when life gets hard. Let's see what happens as Jacob makes his second mistake. Turn back, chapter 34. We'll start with chapter 34, just verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. So Dinah goes out on a trip. Uh, This seems innocent enough, but it wasn't. This was a really bad idea in the ancient world. This was both improper and unwise for a young woman to go alone into a foreign city, which is what Dinah does. It's incredibly dangerous in the ancient world. The ancient world wasn't a safe place for a woman to go unescorted alone. She was taking a huge risk, she was inviting disaster in her life. It would be like a woman walking alone at night through the streets of Kandahar, Afghanistan. You just don't do that, it's a really bad decision. But before we blame Dinah for this really bad decision, we've got to remember, Dinah is probably only about 15 at this point in the story. She's very young. She's in her young teenage years. She doesn't know any better. So who is really at fault in this bad decision? Her parents. Her parents, and particularly Jacob, who says nothing, who does nothing. He doesn't stop her. He doesn't even go with her because he's totally checked out. Jacob doesn't know what his kids are up to. He doesn't care, really only cares about himself at this point in his life. So Dinah goes alone. He allows her to go alone, vulnerable, unprotected, into a foreign city. Incredibly dangerous thing in the ancient world. The results are entirely predictable. I'll just overview them for you for a moment. In the city of Shechem, there is a man named Shechem, same name as the city. He is the son of the king of the city. So he's got a lot of power. And he sees this young, attractive, unescorted woman enter the city, and so what does he do? He kidnaps her and rapes her. Now, that's not a surprise at all. That's exactly what we would expect to happen, unfortunately, in the ancient world. But what is surprising is that having raped her, he falls in love with her. He wants her to be his wife, so he kidnaps her, imprisons her in his home, and then asks his dad, the king of the city, a guy named Hamor, to go to Jacob and ask for this woman to be his wife. So he wants to marry her. And so Hamor and Shechem go to Jacob. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. Or verse 5, rather. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, that is Shechem, had defiled Dinah his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. It should shock us here how silent Jacob is. He has no emotional response, he doesn't grieve, he's not angry. Where's his anger? His daughter was just raped. He doesn't care. He's totally checked out. He's not engaged with his kids. He just cares about himself. Ironically, it's his sons who have the right response. They're furious. They're grieved. They're enraged at this wrong, this violence that has been done to their sister. But Shechem, he still wants Dinah to be his wife, so they begin to negotiate. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father, that's to Jacob, and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as, to you say to, as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem, and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to him, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a d- disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised." So Shechem and Hamor, they speak, you notice, to Jacob and to his sons. But who gives the answer? His sons. Jacob's totally checked out. His sons check in. They begin to negotiate, but you get a hint right at the beginning that his sons are up to something. They answer with deceit. Okay, we'll let her be your wife, but every male among you must be circumcised. Got to go through that surgical procedure. Now, apparently, Dinah was quite a catch because the whole city says, yes, don't really understand that. But the whole city says, okay, so all the males are circumcised. Three days later, while they're still in a great deal of pain from that surgical procedure, look what happens. Verse 25, now it came about, On the third day, when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city. Because they had defiled their sister, they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. When a father checks out, when a father will not lead his family, that leaves a vacuum, Well, someone or something is going to step up and fill that vacuum and set the direction for that family. And in the case of Jacob, when he checks out, it's his second and third oldest sons, Simeon and Levi, who step up to set the direction for their family. And they're liars, just like their dad was, but they're also really violent men. They use the gift of circumcision as a tool for murder. Circumcision was a gift that God had given to Abraham's family. God gave circumcision as a sign, as a symbol of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all of these incredible blessings that God gave to Abraham's family so that Abraham's family could be a blessing to the whole world. So circumcision was meant by God to be a gift that symbolized grace, but Jacob's sons used that gift as a tool for genocide. It would be equivalent to us inviting people to be baptized and then just holding them down until they drowned. That's basically what you're doing. You're using God's gift as a tool for genocide. This is not justice. This is genocide. Maybe Shechem, the man who did the rape, maybe he deserved to die, but not everybody else. This is genocidal. And Simeon and Levi, they are held responsible for this murder they're held responsible, but ultimately the guilt belongs with their dad. It's Jacob who is ultimately responsible. His compromise with sin and his checking out from the family, disengaging from the family, that's what set up this incredibly tragic situation, the slaughter of an entire city. And when we look at Jacob's failures, that he compromised with sin, that he checked out from his family, there's a couple lessons to walk away with, a couple complementary lessons that we need to see in Jacob's failure. The first lesson is that we learn from Jacob, his family is proof that there is no limit to the evil that can fill a family when the parents compromise with sin and check out. You've got to realize this is a family of believers. Jacob is a believer in God. As best we can tell, his sons are believers and God. And yet this family of believers commits genocide, slaughters a whole city. This is like Newtown, Connecticut or Aurora, Colorado kind of violence that happens in a godly family. That's proof to us. If Jacob's family could go this far into evil, so could our families. If we check out, if we compromise with sin. So if you're a parent, you just need to look at your life. You need to reflect on this reality. If you are compromising with sin, if there is some sin in your life that you are making excuses for, you are living with, it just doesn't feel like that big a deal. Hey, come on. If you're compromising with sin, what that means is that you are setting up your family for a Genesis 34 kind of moment. Or if you are checking out, if you're a mom or, you're, or a dad and, and you just can't handle it, your kids are, are so frustrating to you, life is so tense that you just check out and you throw all of your time into your career or into hobbies. If you are checking out from your family, then you are setting up your family for a Genesis 34 kind of moment. We just need to recognize, we need to understand, none of our families, mine included, is inherently immune from the evil and suffering that we see in Jacob's family. If it happened to him, it can happen to us. If we compromise with sin, if we check out, there is no limit to the evil and suffering that can fill our families. That's the bad news. That's the first lesson. But there is good news in the family of Jacob. There's good news because of what happens immediately after what we just read. Chapter 35, things are going to begin to get better. God is going to begin to heal Jacob's family. God is going to begin to bring forgiveness and grace and restoration to this incredibly broken family. And that restoration is just going to improve by the end of the book. By the end of the book, this family that that once committed genocide is actually going to be a model of, of forgiveness And leave a legacy of righteousness. And what that tells you, because things get better for this incredibly broken family, Jacob's family proves a second thing to you, second lesson. No family on earth is beyond hope of restoration. Some of you who are parents here this morning, that you feel like you have made such incredibly bad mistakes in the parenting of your children that it is game over for your family. You've blown it. You've ruined your kids, they're broken, they're beyond hope of restoration. Or there's some of you who grew up in a family that you feel like is beyond hope. Your parents made such bad mistakes that there's no hope for your family ever getting better. You need to realize, no. If Jacob's family could be restored, any family on earth could be restored. If you're a parent here this morning and you feel like you really blew it with your kids, let me ask you, did your kids deceive and then slaughter an entire medium-sized city? Well, if not, then your family is not as bad off as Jacob's. And so if there is hope for Jacob's family, there is hope for your family as well. No family on earth is beyond hope of restoration because God's grace, his healing power knows no limits. He can heal any wound. He can recover any loss. There's always hope. There's hope for every family Any family can be restored and that restoration begins with the parents. With the parents stepping up and beginning to take the lead. And that's what we're going to see in Jacob in chapter 35. He's going to step up as a dad. He's going to step up as a parent. There's two things he's going to do that are going to help him to begin to bring restoration to his family. Got a lot you can learn from these two steps. These are kind of our two steps in good parenting. If you want to be a good parent who does a good job of raising your kids, follow Jacob's two successes in chapter 35. So let's look at chapter 35. Let's see how Jacob begins to bring some recovery, some restoration to his family. Look with me starting in verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, that would be idolatrous earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to lose, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. Jacob begins to step up. The first good thing he has done as a father, he begins to lead in repentance. Lead in repentance. Now, what does that look like for Jacob? He leads his family in repentance first by repenting of his own sin, by getting himself right with the Lord. He repents of of his particular sin, which was compromise, he compromised and settled in Shechem instead of Bethel. And in verse one, God calls him out. Verse one is conviction. God is showing up and saying, Hey, buddy, it's time. It is time to fulfill your promise. You've got to go the rest of the way to Bethel. It's time to stop living with compromise in your life. And Jacob responds well to that conviction. He immediately sets out for Bethel. He gathers his family, said, it's time for us to go. Let's leave everything behind. Let's get going. But it's not just words. He pulls up stakes. He begins to travel to Bethel. That was actually a really risky thing to do because his sons had just slaughtered a whole city of Canaanites. And now he was traveling through Canaanite territory. It's a really risky thing to do, but he goes out in faith trusting that God will protect. God does. God causes fear to fall upon all the Canaanite cities so that Jacob makes it safely to Bethel. So Jacob leads his family in repentance first by repenting from his own sin. He says, okay, I'm done compromising. I'm going to go the rest of the way to Bethel. I'm going to obey. So he repents of sin in his own life. He turns away from it, from sin to obedience. Then, having repented of his own sin, he encourages his family to repent of their sin, their sin of idolatry. Idolatry began in the family of Jacob, actually with his favorite wife, with Rachel. She stole idols from her father's house, from Laban's house. Jacob didn't know about it at first, but when he found out, he didn't do anything about it. He let Rachel teach his family idolatrous worship. So she spreads idolatry to all the kids. And by this point in time, idolatry is just rife in his family. Jacob repents of his own sins. And then he steps up and says, it's, it's time for the family. It's time for us to turn from this sin I see here. So he, he calls out their sin. He encourages them to repent. They respond well. And the family begins to walk in obedience. So Jacob steps up as a parent, as a good father. He begins to lead his family in repentance, and that shows us how we can do the same in our families. Very practical material here. Parents, how do we lead our families in repentance? First, we model it. We model it in our own lives. Repentance must begin with us. You can't expect your kids to turn away from sin if you're walking in it. You gotta begin with yourself. You gotta begin by, by praying, God, show me my sin. Where am I walking in sin? It's time to stop making excuses for that sin. Stop living with it. Stop accepting it. Stop defending it. Acknowledge it. Go before the Lord and acknowledge your sin. Well, let me just give you a moment right now. Just think in your own minds. Don't have to say anything, don't have to write it down, just think in your own minds. Where have you compromised with sin? Where is that thing in your life that that you know you should be doing, but you're not doing for one reason or another? Or maybe it's a bad thing that you shouldn't be doing that you are doing for one reason or another. Where are you living with sin? Where are you choosing to compromise with sin? Because it's easier, because it's more pleasant, because come on, what big deal is this? See the compromise in your own life acknowledge it, and then go to the Lord and confess it. That's how repentance begins. You go to the Lord and you say, God, this is sin and it's not right. I agree with you. This is is wrong what I have done. I pray that you would help me to turn away from this sin, to begin to walk with you in obedience and in righteousness. I would encourage all of you, especially if you're a parent, This afternoon, take some time to go before the Lord and whatever sin is in your life, confess it to him, acknowledge it to him, turn from it. That's where repentance begins. And then if if you have sinned against someone, if your sin has hurt someone, after confessing it to God, you need to go confess it to them. You need to ask them to, to forgive you. Don't wait on that. Do it this afternoon. Don't let that linger. Don't let it fester. It just hurts you and the other person. Go deal with it this afternoon. As soon as I had finished yelling at my kids, as soon as that anger had subsided, and I began to feel awful, and I began to feel incredibly guilty, I immediately asked my kids to forgive me. Turned around, put the car in park, said, Luke Grace, will you forgive me for what I did wrong? I don't think my kids are, are ever going to grow up under the delusion that their dad is perfect. I think that ship has sailed. My kids know that. What I hope that they will grow up with is is the belief that their dad is quick to repent. When their dad blows it, he is quick to ask for forgiveness and turn away from his sin. If you've hurt somebody with your sin, confess it to God, then confess it to them. That's how you begin to lead in repentance. You get right with the Lord in your own life. Deal with your own sin first. So you model repentance and then having modeled it in your own life, the second thing you do, you encourage it in others. Model it in your own life, then encourage it in other people. So if there's some sin that you see in your family, maybe it's, it's in your spouse or it's in your kids, you see this sin in your family and you've been silent about it. You've just been living with it, ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug. It's time for that to change. It's time to acknowledge that sin and encourage your your family to turn away from that sin. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it. You should be loving, you should be gracious, you should be gentle, but you need to speak. Silence is not love. When somebody's sinning, it's not loving to be silent about it. That's actually a hateful thing. Love is to address it. Lovingly, graciously, gently, but you gotta speak up. And so I would encourage you, if you're a parent, just to think a little bit about your family, your kids, your spouse, your parents, your family. Is there some sin that you see that's, that's ongoing, that, that they're not addressing and you haven't addressed? Maybe today is the day to speak up. Again, not as a jerk. You do it lovingly. You do it graciously. But, but pray, God, if you want me to speak up about this sin today, then, then please give me wisdom. Help me to know what to say and give me an opportunity. Open a window so that I can speak lovingly about this sin. That's what parents are called to do. We model repentance in our own lives, and then we encourage it in the lives of our family. You don't stay silent about sin. You don't sweep it under the rug. You address it. So, parents, we're called to lead our families in repentance. That's the first good thing we see Jacob do here in chapter 35. He begins to step up and lead his family. Now let's now look at the, the second good thing Jacob does. A second step in good parenting begins in verse 7. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alakan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. second thing that we see Jacob do right, second step in good parenting, you lead your family in worship. Lead your family in worship. That's what Jacob does. You'll notice in verse 7 and verse 14, he builds two altars, two altars. That was kind of a a stack of stones, a monument. Now, in the ancient world, the way that you worshiped God was by building an altar, Not, not how we do it through singing together like this. You built a monument in front of your family that would forever remind them of how good and great God is. Okay, so he builds altars. He is leading his family in worship. And between these two moments of altar building, these two moments of of family worship, you'll notice that God speaks. God speaks, verses nine through 12. God speaks and reminds Jacob of the promises. God reminds Jacob about the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what's interesting in those verses, God doesn't tell Jacob anything new. There's no new information here. Jacob had already heard all of this before. All God is doing is reminding Jacob what God has promised. That's what a good parent does. A good parent reminds their kids about the promises of God. A good parent reminds their kids about who God is, what God has done, what God has promised to do in the future, Why do you do that? Because if your kids don't know who God is, if they don't know what God's done, if they don't know what God has promised, then how could you possibly expect your kids to ever love or worship God? They're not going to love or worship a God they do not know. And so we tell them who God is, what he's done, what he's promised, because that is the foundation of worship for your children. That's where worship begins in their life. Throughout their growing up, throughout their years, they need to be continually reminded by their parents of who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised. That's how you will lay a foundation in them of worship. As they begin to know God and understand him, the response in their hearts will be love and worship. So one of the most frequent themes you'll see throughout, especially the Old Testament, to parents is God's command that our primary responsibility as parents is to remind our kids continually who God is, what He's done, and what He's promised. If you're a parent in your room, your primary responsibility is really simple. It's just that. Remind your kids continually who God is, what He's done, what He's promised. You'll see that throughout Scripture. Here's one place in the book of Psalms. We are commanded as parents, tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God. Parents, it's it's our responsibility to help our children not forget not forget the works of God, not forget who their God is and what he has promised. We should continually be reminding our children and teaching them who their God is and helping them to respond in worship. That's our primary responsibility. Lead our families in worship by reminding them who God is, what he's done, what he's promised. Let me give you a few just practical ways that you can begin to do that today in your family? How can you begin to to lead your family in worship? A few things that you can do. Uh, first, you can pray with your kids. Probably many of you are already doing that at meals or at bedtime. Pray with your kids, and as you pray, use your prayer as an opportunity to teach your children what worship is, what worship looks like. So in your prayer, give thanks, because Giving thanks is really the essence of worship. Give thanks, celebrate who God is and and what he's done, and then pray for God's help. Pray that God would, would lead and direct your family. As you pray with your kids, don't use big words. Don't use complicated concepts. You don't need to educate them about propitiation yet. You can just keep it really simple really basic. When I sit down with my kids and it's, it's nighttime, they're getting in their beds, I will just pray over them, Luke, God, we come before you and we thank you for giving us Luke. He is, is such a, a gift to us. We, we pray that he would come to know how much you love him. We pray that he would come to follow you and know you and love you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who, who died to take away Luke's sins and my sins too. In Jesus' name, amen. You, you just keep it super simple. You pray with your kids at dinner and and as they go to bed and they begin to learn what it looks like to walk with God in love and worship through your prayers. So pray with your kids. Second, sing with your kids. Sing with your kids. Uh, There's lots of great worship albums out there for kids of any age. You can always default to the classics, Jesus Loves Me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Just sing with your kids. Now, if you don't have a very good singing voice, uh, that's okay. That's not an excuse because your kids, especially if they're young, they can't tell the difference. They, they don't know if you're tone deaf. It's not like this is the voice or something. You just, you just need to get in there and sing. I, I am tone deaf. I don't know how to sing and I forget every other line of any given song. And yet I sing with my kids because they don't care. They just need to hear me singing so they can learn how to do that. Now, men, if, if some of you men feel like you are too manly to sing worship with your kids, then biblically speaking, you don't know what it means to be manly. Because in ancient Israel, it was actually not the women who did the bulk of the singing. It was the men, especially the kings and the priests and the warriors who led all of the nation in song. So if you think you're too manly to sing, then really you're not manly at all. Because that's what men do. We teach our families how to sing praise to God. That's our job. So you pray with your kids. You sing with your kids. Finally, my last idea, you help your kids give thanks. You teach them how to give thanks. Here's a suggestion. This is a brilliant idea my wife came up with. When our kids are fighting with each other or they are whiny, um, which they're for, so that's like every day, Um, when that's happening, Julie will just step in and put a stop to whatever they're doing. So if they're watching TV, the TV is on pause. If they're fighting over a toy, she takes the toy. Whatever it is, she puts a stop to it and tells them, you cannot have the show back or the toy back until you each name one thing you are grateful for. And so they'll do it, and then they get to resume whatever they're doing, hopefully not fighting at that point. Now, they're four, so they just have to do one. As they get older, we'll, we'll give more. You've got to give two. You've got to give three. You've got to give four. So you just find these moments in the day to interject gratitude into your family, to teach your kids the habit of giving thanks. If your kids are, are older, I don't think that idea will work, but maybe you're sitting around the table at dinner, And you just make a habit every night, you're going to spend a couple minutes going around the table. Each person is going to name one example from today, from this day, of where they saw God's grace or his love or his power. Just each person is going to name one thing. If you begin to do that, you are, are teaching your children the habit of gratitude, and that is the essence of worship. Worship is really all about gratitude, giving thanks to God. So parents, it's our job to teach our kids how to be grateful. Okay, so we've covered a lot of advice this morning, a lot of directives to parents. I want to help you to summarize this. Wrap your arms around it. I want to give you something to to really walk away with this morning. One last idea to help pull this all together for you. Parents, as you think about your job, we need to understand that our primary responsibility as parents is not for our children. It is to our children seems like a a very small change, but it's incredibly significant. Let me explain. A lot of parents these days are living under the incorrect, crushing assumption that they are held responsible for their children. That God holds them responsible for every decision their kids make. That God holds them responsible to raise godly, mature, well-adjusted, successful kids. No, that is not true. Because our, our kids aren't robots. Our, our kids are human beings with free will. They have the God-given right and ability to make their own decisions which they will be held responsible for. You cannot control your children. You cannot control the outcome of your children's lives, no matter how many self-help Christian parenting books you read. You can't control them. That's why sometimes even the most godly parents raise wayward kids. If you want proof of that, if you want to feel better about your own parenting, just think about the greatest parent of all, God. He's the perfect father, and yet he has some pretty awful kids. Because being a good parent does not guarantee that you will have good kids. That's okay, because God does not hold you responsible for your children. You are responsible to your children. You are responsible to be models to them of faith, of obedience, of repentance, of worship. You are responsible to get your own life in order so that you can show them through how you live what it means to walk with the Lord. Think about Jacob's failures in these chapters. He did not fail based on the decisions his kids made. His kids are held responsible for their own decisions. His failure was in his own decisions His bad choices to compromise with sin, to check out from his family, that's where he failed. He didn't get his own life in order. Parents, our primary responsibility is to our children to get our lives in order so that we can be models to them of faith and obedience, of repentance and worship. Now, that begins with belief in the gospel. It begins with entering into a relationship with God. If you want to model to your kids what it looks like to, to live in relationship with God, to love God, to believe in God, that begins with the good news of the gospel, with believing that you don't need to earn God's love, that you don't need to earn heaven or eternal life, that it's a free gift. It's a free gift that God made possible for you by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for your sins, to die in your place, and then rise from the dead to purchase eternal life for you. And now Jesus offers that to you, forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You just have to say yes. Yes, God, I want to be forgiven. I want to spend eternity with you. I want to know your love in my life. I say, yes, Jesus died for me, rose from the dead. I receive that gift of eternal life. For all of us who have received that free gift, our primary job as parents from this point forward is to be models to our children of of obedience and of worship. And when we blow it, of quick repentance. That's your job. Be a model to your child. Your primary responsibility is not for your kids. It is to your kids to be a model to them of what it looks like to walk with the Lord. Now, wherever your family is on the spectrum of healthy to unhealthy, every one of us as parents, every family represented in this room has room to improve. We all have room to improve, but we need God's help for that. Every family represented in this room needs God's grace. We need God's grace and power to sustain us. We need God's gracious healing in our lives to heal the wounds in us and the wounds that we have caused. We need God to work, God to grow us as better parents. If you're not a parent yet, you need God to work in your life to heal you from the wounds you received growing up and to prepare you to be a great parent one day. So I want us to end by going to the Lord and just pleading with him for help, to grow us so that we can be great parents in the lives of our kids. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you chose to have yourself called Father. That you who are creator, the awesome God, the king of kings, the sovereign Lord, that you would want to be known as our dad. Thank you that you have chosen to parent us. And we look at our lives, we look at humanity and we think, why in the world did you choose to be a dad to us? We, we are so bad, we are so unworthy, we are so often so frustrating and, and yet, Lord, in love you chose to be our dad. You chose to love us unconditionally. You chose to send your own perfect beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us for the sins we had committed so that you could forgive us and grant us eternal life. We thank you that you are the perfect Father, that you love us, that you forgive us. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you have given many of us to be parents, to to have children, to raise children. But Father, it is a task that is too great for us. Father, we are so foolish, we are so frail, we are so sinful and weak. Father, we grieve over the fact that we have been at times bad parents, we've done things that we have regretted, we've done things that we feel ashamed about towards our kids. Thank you that you forgive us for that. Thank you that you as God are not limited by our failures or our weaknesses. You are great enough to heal any wound and recover any loss. We celebrate that. But Father, we pray that you would be at work in our lives, growing us so that we might become better parents. We pray, Father, that you would convict us of sin in our own lives, that you would help us to to turn from it today, to not let another day go by where we're making excuses for our sin. We pray that you would help us to be bold and courageous to speak truth and love when we see sin in our families. We pray, Lord, that you would grow us in worship, that we would be examples to our kids of what it means to love you and praise you. I pray, Father, that that you would give us practical ideas that as parents we would walk out of here not just feeling guilt, not feeling overwhelmed, but having specific practical ideas that we can begin to implement in our families today to help us raise kids who repent and who worship. I pray, Father, for every person in this room. May you be at work in our lives as our loving Father, growing us, convicting us, and challenging us so that we might become more like your perfect son. In his name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Next week, we'll start Joseph.